Ken, I've noticed uh, in the comments section of the last few videos that people are starting to talk about how they've discovered your YouTube channel and have found the treasure trove of videos you have there. So I want to encourage other people, go to Ken's YouTube channel. Uh, it's uh, Bible for Family on YouTube. Is that right? Yep. Bible for Family? Yep, Bible and, for Family. And it's, it, there'll be a link in the description as well. But go there. There's, you're, going through the, you're going through the book of Matthew right now, verse by mm -hmm. verse, right? Yes. And you just went through Hebrews. Yeah. And there's just so many other great videos. So you've got yeah. great content right here on Jimmy Vision, and you've got even more great content on Bible for Family. So check it out. Thank okay. You. Okay. But there's one other thing I wanted to bring up on, mm. our, on our last video. Uh, one of our uh, viewers, Colleen, had a, a comment that I thought maybe you might want to address. Mm. She says, what is scary to me is... What is to become of us? If the Bible was written for that time, is there anything in the Bible for this time? Mm. How would you answer that? Well, I, I'll enjoy answering, Colleen. I, before I do, I just want to also just let people know, if you are in the Central Florida area, um, we actually worship together every Sunday. And if people would like to come and join us, we're in Leesburg, if you're anywhere near there, we would love for you to come join our Bible study. So you can find where we are from our website. Um, Colleen, there's nothing, this it shouldn't be a scary thing. In fact, everything we're going over is very exciting. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about the victory of Christ. That he is victorious, that he's king. And just because we're saying that uh, these key parts of the Bible are in the past, doesn't mean that all of... Our hope is in the past. In fact, our hope is present. Our hope is in the future. Uh, I want to show just one passage in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We normally call this the Great Commission. Uh, usually people only include verses 19 through 20, and I think that's, that's, um, that's not proper. In fact, verse 19 starts the word therefore. And usually you ask, why is therefore therefore? In verse 18, this is Jesus's a new message to his disciples after his resurrection. So they've gone through all of this with him. Now he has died, he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again three days later, and he announces something very important to the disciples. Now we're on this side of the cross. Very important to understand, this is the side of the cross that you and I are on. He says in verse 18, Jesus came and spake to them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's the new message on this side of the cross. Jesus was given all power in heaven and in earth. So we are sitting on this, this side of the cross with Jesus, the side that he's been given all power, which by the way, folks might say, well, he always had all power. No, he didn't. He came as a man. God emptied himself, became a man, and died for our sins, rose again, and then was given all power. There's a difference between Jesus on one side of the cross and the other. So Satan is kicked out of heaven at this point because Jesus has all power in heaven. And he's ruling the earth as the king of kings and lord of lords. What's so fun for us is that's our king. 
and we're in his kingdom as a citizen. We're furthering his kingdom. The power of the Holy Spirit comforts us and leads us and guides us every day. And we look forward to, in my belief system, and the way that I understand the Bible, we look forward to the second coming of Christ in our future. It may be tomorrow. I don't think it will be. I think it's going to be more like 10,000 years or 20,000 years. I think I'll be long gone. I think we all will be. But it could be tomorrow. I don't know. I think there's some work to be done on the earth to evangelize so that the, the, the there's power in the blood of Jesus. We sing there's victory in Jesus. I believe those things. I don't think we lose down here. I think we win. The power of the cross is so powerful. It can make even the strongest man bend his knee and worship our Savior. And the power of the cross of Christ is beyond measure. And I believe Jesus announces that he is the Savior of the world. And I believe just as we went over in Psalm 110, he will sit at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are subject to him. And that's a process. So we're in an exciting part where we see the growth of the kingdom part. We're talking about the end of the Judaic age um, was the end of the sacrificial system in the temple. That's what we're going over in Matthew 24. So folks, don't look at this and say, well, if this is already in the past, then what does this matter to me? It matters everything. This is the record of the victory of our king. And we today get to live in his victory. So it's a very exciting time. Very exciting. And it sounds yes, like you're a... Your Bible study might have got exciting yesterday too. So were you were you getting pretty loud yesterday? Uh, uh, yes, I had my uh, my son had a basketball game. I I um I, I I I'm there to help the referees if they miss a call. I'm I'm a servant. That's what I do. And uh, sometimes I had to let them know if they missed a call. I'm, I then right after that we had our Sunday service and uh, <laughs> I may or may not have gotten kicked out of out of a basketball game one time <laughs> when my five-year-old was playing basketball. Yeah. <laughs> I did turn to the whole audience and apologize on my way out. <laughs> that's for a, a five-year-old game. That's pretty impressive. It's a true story too. <laughs> I'm for, I'm not making that one up, man. I am glad I'm not competitive like you. That is embarrassing. I've had my competitive <laughs> days for sure. <laughs> I was right my, though. My, as long as you're right, I know my family would be laughing. I'm, I'm completely saying that sarcastically because um, our family's very competitive. But, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> what do you think? We go. You want to go through some Matthew 24? Let's do it. We're gonna just try to accomplish just a few verses here. If we can go through verses, um, a little bit of recap on verse three and all the way through verse eight, then it'll be a, um, a great full video. So let's go ahead and head to Matthew chapter. 24. And I want <clears throat> to just show a couple of things that I think we went over a little bit too quickly last time. And um, I want to just talk about this verse here in verse three, specifically when Jesus says, uh, when the, the disciples ask, and what is the sign of thy coming right here? Um, when we read that, when I grew up reading that, I grew up in a dispensationalist church we would say a futurist uh, church, which means that they viewed this passage and passages like this happening in our future. And when I would read something like your coming, the coming of the Lord, I'm like most people, when I read that, I automatically thought of the second coming. 
And so when I tell people that I think Matthew 24 happened in our past, they automatically think, even though I'm not saying this, they automatically think, oh, you think the second coming has already happened in the first century. And I want people to understand that's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is this phrase right here, what's the sign of your coming? It's not second coming. This is talking about a coming in judgment, not necessarily a physical coming where Christ presented himself. You know, it says in Acts chapter one, when Jesus ascended in Acts one, the angel ministered to the disciples there and said, he's going to come again in like manner, meaning physically. So there will be a second coming where Christ will descend physically. I believe that. But here in this passage, they're asking, what's the sign of your coming in judgment? Now, I want to show a couple of things in the Bible. Remember, this is old hat to the disciples. They knew the old covenant lingo. They understood it. To us, we have to kind of get our 2,000-year-later Western mind wrapped around first-century Hebraic thinking. Remember, Deuteronomy 28 was talking about the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. We're in the cursing part of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Um, also, you know, I want to just real quickly before we go into the Old um, Testament, let me, let me also do this. I want to just look at Hebrews chapter number 8 real quickly. And beginning at verse number 7, just listen to the argument of, of the Hebrew writer. He says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. So if the first covenant was great and it worked, perfect, we wouldn't have needed a second one. Jesus came because there was found fault in the first covenant. Now, maybe I could ask folks, what do you think the fault was of the first covenant? Well, the answer is simple. The answer was the first covenant was dependent upon your strict obedience. And you aren't going to do that. So that makes everybody a great candidate for destruction in hell. That's the fault of the first covenant. So we have a second one in place, thank God, by the righteousness of Christ. So if the first one was fine, we wouldn't be seeking a second. Look at that, verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Some people think of that as an amended version. Maybe we possibly keep some of it still and it's amended. Now look at what verse 9 says. The new covenant is not according to the covenant I made with their fathers. This is an entirely new covenant. It's not an amended covenant. This is a totally new one that's not according to the old one. In the days when I took them by the hand and lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind. Yes, we still have the laws of God put into our mind, but it's the laws of Christ, not of Moses. I'm a Christ follower. I'm not a Moses follower. I am a Christian. I'm not a, how would you say it? Mosaican. I am a Christian. I go by the laws of Christ. He reiterated the ones and he told me the ones he wants me to keep. He's put those laws in my mind. It's no longer a stone tablet. He's written them on my heart. I will be with them a God and they shall be to me a people. That's who we are in our new the new covenant. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for all shall know me, from least to greatest. In other words, Jimmy, consider 
Let me get a little bit of context for this. In the first centuries, just so people could understand what Hebrews is talking about, because people might read that and go, we're not supposed to tell our neighbor. Let me explain. In the first century, when the Christian uh, kingdom, when the nation of Christ, I'd rather prefer to say that, when the nation of Christ began to expand in the first century, did you guys know that the Romans thought we were atheists? Now, you might say, why would we be considered atheists? It's very simple. Because the Romans believed in a bunch of gods. And when the Christians came along and said, we believe in one God, and God became a man and allowed a personal relationship to take place, they said, so you don't believe in all these other gods? You guys are atheists. And so that was the backdrop culturally of the first century when the nation of Christ was growing. And so here, Jesus is making this announcement in the Old Covenant. This is a quotation from the Old Covenant. And he says, when the New Covenant comes, you're not going to have to teach your brother about me or talk about this new system. You know what? When I go down the road right now, Jimmy, and I ask people, do you believe in God? Do you know? Let me show how much progress we've made in 2,000 years. I never one time in... I don't know, 35 years of witnessing. I've never one time had anybody say, which God are you asking if I believe in? Which would have been a total common, valid question in the first century. Now, 2,000 years after this, the new covenant, everybody knows on the streets that I'm talking about the one true God of the Bible. Now that's progress. Amen. And so here he says, you don't even have to teach people about me. They're going to all know me. Now it's not whether, what God are you talking about? It's, do you believe in the one true God? People can say yes or no, but we all know who we're talking about. For they shall know me from the least to greatest. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I think some people need to read that about 10 times. The Lord is merciful to our unrighteousness. How is that? Because we're in him, salvation shelter. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more if we're in Christ. He that say, in that he saved a new covenant, listen to this, folks, he hath made the first old. If there's a new one, then we have an old one. And he says, now that which is decayeth waxeth old and is ready to vanish away. Remember, this is written first century prior to the temple's destruction. So the writer of Hebrews is just making the point. We've got a new one and there's a baton handoff of a 40-year period. Remember a race? When somebody grabs that baton, for a split second, they're both running with the baton. That's the, that's the book of Acts time period from AD 30 to AD 70, where they're both going and the author's saying, the old one is ready to vanish away. And as soon as that temple's destroyed, it's over. So us now here in 2024, mm -hmm. that ready to vanish away doesn't apply to us. It's in our past. The reader's future, our past. It vanished away totally. In AD 70, when the temple was destroyed and the Judaic age has never been replicated since, and it never will be. It was completely annihilated. It's over. That doesn't mean there's not Jews today. We can go to Israel and see that there are descendants of Abraham, but they're not significant to prophecy. They are precious people who need the Lord Jesus as Savior, but it's not significant to biblical prophecy. Right. So you may even find a building one day that has a label, temple. 
but it's not one that's inhabited by the presence of the Lord. It's insignificant. If you find that, it would be insignificant to biblical prophecy. We are now the new temple. So um, let's go ahead and look at just a couple of key passages. I want to show people this idea of the coming of the Lord. This is Isaiah chapter 13. You look here in verse 1. It's the burden of Babylon. This happened in our past, but this happened in the reader's future. This is prophecy at the time it was written, and it's since then been fulfilled. Look at the wording here in Isaiah chapter 9. Behold, the day of the Lord. That's right. It was called the day of the Lord when Isaiah was prophesying about the destruction of Babylon. Because that's a phrase that was often used in the Old, in the Old Testament when discussing the destruction of a nation from the Lord. He says, the day of the Lord, what? Check that out. He cometh. So now we have the Lord coming. And he, he's coming. You can read all this. He's going to make the land desolate. We have even deconstruction language, the stars of heaven. Constellations shall not give their light. The sun shall not uh, shall be darkened from its going forth. The moon shall not cause her light to shine and so forth. People can read that on their own. But I just want them to see this happened in our past. It's talking about the coming of the Lord, the Lord, the day of the Lord, the sun and the moon not giving its light. Let's go and, to some more. And we did a video on the sun, moon, and stars. Yes. That what that yep. meant during that yep. time. That's right. Decreation language, we like to call that. Isaiah chapter 19 in verse 1. This is the burden of Egypt. We just looked at Babylon. Now here's Egypt. Look at this. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud. A cloud in the Bible is the presence of the Lord. We have the cloud in the tabernacle when the sacrifice is accepted. We have the Lord leading the children of Israel by a, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. This is the presence of the Lord. And so here we have this language where folks need to understand that the Lord himself did not physically come down on a cloud and fight with the Egyptians. He used other armies to attack them and says, he's the one that came and did it. He used other armies to do that. Let's look at more. We have in Isaiah 34. Isaiah chapter 34. This is the doom of Edom. Edom, the, the descendants of Edom. And by the way, you have that in verse 5. This word right here can be translated as Edom. Idumia. And this, if you want the record of this, this is the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the record of the doom of Edom. But look what he says. Come near, ye nations, to hear. Hearken, ye people, let the earth and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations. His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. Now, according to Isaiah 34, 2, it was the Lord who destroyed the Edomites. Yet he wasn't there. I couldn't go shake his hand. He used other armies and declared that he did it. So this is a common way of talking about the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. He's using other armies to punish people. Of course, we have, again, it's all over the place. Host of heaven shall be dissolved. Heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll. And all their hosts shall fall down. The leaf falleth off, off the vine. That means they're separated. We have a fig tree analogy here in verse 4. So people can read that later. But I just want folks to understand, when you get to the idea of the Lord coming, it doesn't always mean a physical. In fact, most times, the vast majority of the times, it does not mean his second coming. Let me show you some in the New Testament. 
in Revelation 5, this is the, the, the letters to the seven churches. Two, Revelation 2, 5? Revelation 2, yeah. 5. He says, remember, therefore, uh, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Now, you know, we're talking to the church of Ephesus right now. He says, if you don't repent and do the first works, he looks, look, he says, or else I will come unto thee quickly. That's Jesus speaking. Is that the second coming? No. And in fact, even our futurist friends believe that Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are in our past. They believe it's Revelation 4 and on that's in the future. Now, I don't agree with them, but even they would agree that this is in our past. Hardcore dispensationalists believe this is in our past. But look what Jesus is saying. If you don't repent, I will come unto thee quickly to a church in the first century. No one that I know of believes that's talking about the second coming. What's he going to do? Remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. In other words, the candlestick here is the illumination of the gospel from this church. In other words, he's going to take the church away. They're not going to be a church anymore. That's what he's talking about. This is not an isolated thing. Look at verse 16. The church of Pergamos, repent or else I will come unto thee. It's just not isolated. It's just the way that we talked about this in the Bible. The coming of the Lord onto something is not talking about necessarily the second coming. In fact, it almost never is. Remember, therefore, now we're talking about the church of Sardis. Remember what you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. Look again in verse number 11, the church of Philadelphia. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast as thou hast. Um, look at verse number 20, Laodicea. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Wow, what, what door is Jesus at? What door? Whose house did he go to? What door is he at? It's figurative. This is not the second coming. If any man hear my voice and open at the door, what's he going to do? I'll come in unto him. I'll sup with him and he with me. What house was he going? What dinner did he go to? He didn't. This is figuratively saying, if you're obedient to me, I'm going to partner with you to advance my kingdom. You'll have my presence in your life if you are obedient to me. No one that I know of, no commentary thinks any of these are talking about the second coming. So I just want folks to understand this is not we're doing the opposite of, of isolating a meaning. In fact, what I think other folks are doing is I think they're isolating this and saying that's the second coming. If you take the wording of the rest of the Bible, you don't take this as the second coming. It's the coming in judgment on a cloud. We're going to see that later. So I just wanted to go over that so people could understand that. So before we get into our um, few verses today, the that's five good. verses today. That's good. Because I didn't really do a very good job, I don't think, last video of explaining that. Um, okay, quick concept I want folks to understand as we're going through here. Because this, um, maybe I can do a graph for our next video, so, or a quick chart. When you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, understand that one of those writers, Luke, is a Gentile. Matthew, which of course we're reading the book of Matthew, was a Jew. He was a Jewish author. Luke is a Gentile. They write very differently from those different perspectives. Um, Matthew is saying things that a Jew would understand hearing, a Jewish person would understand hearing. Luke says things almost to where we understand it. He leaves out a lot of Jewish idioms, a lot of Jewish sayings he leaves out. 
And um, he writes, very straightforward. Well, folks need to understand, this is covering the time period up until the death and resurrection of Jesus, up until about uh, AD 30. The book of Acts, who was written by Luke, takes up from AD 30, the ascension of Christ in Acts 1, all the way to late 60s, to about when we see Paul die. It's not recorded in Acts 28, but that's the time period. Probably right when the tribulation period is starting in 66 to 70 AD, Acts covers those years. So what we're going to do in this video series, and if folks are still hanging with us, I applaud you. Because up until now, we haven't been able to take the time to really dig into the meat of the prophecy. And we're going to do that in this video. And so if you are still with us watching, then I congratulate you because you are going to see in this video how we're going to do all of our study in Matthew 24 and all of our study in Revelation. Here's the deal. We've got prophecies recorded in Matthew 24. We've got prophecies recorded all throughout Revelation. We are going to look in the book of Acts, that time period that Luke wrote from AD 30 to AD 70 approximately, late 60s anyway, and we are going to be looking in his writings because we believe he wrote the book of Acts not as a throwaway book, not of a book of random stories. He wrote Acts to show that the prophecies in Matthew 24, which are paralleled in Revelation, are all prophecies that were fulfilled in his day. Just as Jesus said in verse 34, in this generation. Now, that's a lot of heavy lifting on our part, and that's what we're going to do. You know, for most of my—I'm sure I just missed it, but for most of my life, you know, when I would read Acts, you just read it like it's something that happened over a two- or three-year period. But no, it's it's a 40—it's a 30-plus year— 30-plus, yeah. —history book. That's right. That's right. Let's dig in. So Luke, I like to call Luke an evidentiary writer. It's kind of a fancy way of saying he writes with the purpose of evidence. Um, Jesus made prophecies. Luke made sure that we knew that they happened. That's a way to think of that. So let's read this. Verses 4 through 8 is all we're going to cover in this video. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in diverse places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. There's a lot there, and uh, let's have some fun diving in. First thing is, they were wondering when the sign of his coming would be. And of the end of this Jewish age, we talked about that a lot last time, the destruction of the temple. Remember, we talked about Mark and Luke not even recording this part right here of uh, the end of the world that's not in theirs. Because, again, now that people are starting to learn more, you will you would notice now, um, I'm not going to go into it because we went into the last video, but you'll now begin to recognize why Luke wouldn't say the end of the world. It's a very Jewish thing to say. Because it's not the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as a Judaic age Jew would know it. It's the end of their whole sacrificial system. That whole world ended. Luke wouldn't have seen it that way. 
So he didn't record that part. Matthew was showing the force of this. This temple is going to be taken away. That only has a lot of force if you're a Jewish person trying to use the temple for the atonement of your sin. Luke, a Gentile, he doesn't even record that part. He says, when shall these things be? What is the sign of your coming? Mark simplifies it. When shall these things be? What things? Destruction of the temple. It's our Jewish author that says, and of the end of the world. And as we know, that word is eon. It means age or time period. Has, eon has the idea of eon and ionios. That's the, ionios is the Greek word for John 3.16, everlasting life. It's a time measurement. Cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos. Uh, that's the word world when we're talking about the whole humanity, cosmos. That's not the word here. It's eon. It's a time period. It's the end of the age. Okay? So Jesus says to them, first of all, take heed that no one deceives you. In other words, in the book of Acts, there would be a temptation for the disciples and the followers of Christ to be in such a bad place because things are going to heat up and get really wicked and get really bad towards the time of Jacob's trouble, 66 to 70 AD, with the Roman Jewish war. It's going to heat up as we get closer to that. And there are going to be people that are going to come by and say, I'm the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, don't you deceive, don't let them deceive you. It's not me. Now, how is Jesus so sure that it's not them? Well, if you understand it, how Jesus is saying it, it makes total sense. How did, how, how is Jesus so confident it's not going to be him? Because he's going to ascend into heaven. Now, if you take this as the second coming, you can't be so sure. Right. If Jesus is talking about the second coming and he says, one day you're going to see me, but it's not going to be me that you see. That doesn't make sense. He should say, look for me. I'm coming. Make sure it's me, but I will be there. Here he says, many are going to come in my name and it won't be me. How's he so sure? Because he's not going to be there. That's how he's sure. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be ascended during this time. So this is not talking about his second coming. It's talking about a coming in judgment. And people will come and say, I am he. I am the Messiah. And he's saying, they're going to deceive many. Don't you guys be deceived. I'm telling you right now, it won't be me. Why? He's going to be ascended at the right hand of the Father. It won't be him. Now, we do have um, many, actually, places to go for verses 4 and 5. Don't be deceived. Don't take heed that no man deceive you. Many shall come in my name saying, I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. Remember, folks, G uh, Christ is not Jesus's last name. He's not Mr. Christ. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. So they will come and they will say, I am anointed of God. I'm the one you're waiting for. And uh, maybe they could even say, Hey, you guys have heard about this thing of dual prophecy. Uh, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm another fulfillment of Daniel 9 and 7. And Jesus is saying, nah, there's only one Messiah, and I've already fulfilled that. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of, of, uh, of, uh, of instances of this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5 and verse, 30, uh, verse 36. There's a guy named Thaddeus. Thaddeus, for um, before these days rose up Thaddeus, boasting himself to be somebody. That's the key. These guys are saying, man, look at me. Look at who I am. 
I'm, I'm a Messiah. Look what happened. To whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. Uh, let's go ahead and finish this. This whole portion is very interesting. After this man rose up, Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing drew away much people after him. So there's a second person. He also perished. So Luke, our evidentiary writer, making sure you understood that many came in the name of Jesus uh, saying, I am somebody special. And here's two examples of, of Thaddeus and Judas. Many people after him. He also perished. Judas. Uh, Luke is making sure you understand. They came, they died. They weren't the Messiah. And and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. That was the end of their movement. And now I say, and you refrain from these men, let them alone. For if this counsel or this work of men, of this or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. In other words, what um, what's being said here is, if this is truly a work of God, you can't stop it. What's being talked about right now is that the disciples, the apostles, are preaching about the kingdom of God. And he's saying, you can't stop it if it's real. And if it's not real, it'll fizzle out, just like these men. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Don't don't be on the wrong side of history here. And to him they agreed when when they had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So... These apostles of Jesus were being beat, saying, you guys are just like Thaddeus and Judas and these other movements. Stop it. So they beat the apostles, our heroes, our heroes of the faith. They beat them and said, stop speaking the name of Jesus and let them go. This would be the climate for the next 40 years after the ascension of Christ. The apostles, the followers of Jesus would be beaten and um suffered terribly leading up to the the Roman Jewish war. Sounds like a lot of persecution. Persecution ramped up, ramped up. Yeah, absolutely. And tribulation, some would say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Both of those words are, are absolutely applicable here. Here's another one guy named Simon. We call him Simon, the sorcerer. Some people may know him by Acts chapter eight and verse nine, but there was a certain man named called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched uh, the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. Again, the same wording we see, Jimmy, of saying, I'm somebody great. Their self-proclaimed greatness, which is to say no greatness at all, really. You, you know, some outside sources even said that that Jerome, I mean, uh, that Simon claimed to be the actual son of God. Yeah, and really, if they're saying they're, they're somebody special, that's what they're saying. Yeah. But he used to use magic. He had a bag of tricks. He was called Simon the Sorcerer, to whom they all gave heed. Everybody listened to this guy, from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the great power of God. So they saw Simon as an extension of God's power. And to him, they had regard, because that of a long time, he'd bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, see, the apostles came in this vacuum and started talking about who Jesus was and people got saved. <laughs> well, if you're a, um, if you're a magician trying to trick people, if you made money off of whittling idols, the apostles were bad news to you. They put people out of business. Jesus puts bad religion out of business. 
I would even shorten and say Jesus puts religion out of business. Jesus didn't come to be the founder of a global religion. He came to be the founder of a kingdom. Very different. A religion tries to appease a God to not have wrath upon them. Our king took the wrath of God upon himself. And he established a kingdom and he wants a relationship with us. I don't even tell people I'm not real. I don't consider myself religious at all. I'm in a relationship with the king of kings. So these guys who are religious, in fact, if you look in the book of James and you look at religion, it's an act. I do. I would say I do religious acts, which is, according to the book of James, is loving the fatherless and the widows. But I'm not a religious person in the sense that I'm adhering to a system to appease God. Jesus did that for me. I'm in a relationship with him. I am safe and protected in him and want to obey him because I love him. And Jesus put religion out of business. It says here in verse number 13, Simon himself believed also. So when he heard Philip talking, Simon, the sorcerer, is like, wow, that is some legit stuff you guys are talking about. I want to get baptized. And I want to continue with you, Philip. I want to follow you. And you know what he did? He saw the miracles and signs which were done. He saw Philip healing people. He's like, wow, I want that in my bag of tricks. He missed it. So you don't, you don't think he w- truly wanted to be converted? There may have been an element to that, but here it says he was so taken back by the healing powers of the apostles that they he wanted it. And so here we read, um, let's see how far we should go here. Oh, is it at the end of this chapter? I think, oh, here we go. Yeah, it's right here. When Simon saw through laying on of the apostles' hands and the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. When he saw them healing people, he said, how much money would it take for me to have this magic trick? I want to be able to do this. He, he has a lifetime of, of that, tricking people and doing magic. And they said, he said, give me this power also, that whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. I want to be able to do this. How much money would it cost? What's this for sale for? Peter said, thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that this gift of God may be purchased with money. He missed it. Thou hast neither part nor nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So that's what Philip's conclusion was, or Peter, I'm sorry. And so he told me he needs to repent from this wickedness and pray. So here's another one that had a big following, uh, said he was somebody special. He even said that he believed and got baptized. Whether it was genuine or not, it doesn't seem like it was because he was attracted to the the potential uh, advancement of his own business. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. He he said he believed and he even got baptized. Yeah. Yet Peter just told him, "You need to repent. You're not legit. <laughs> You're not legit." Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of these uh, false converts. Many Jesus said, "Many will come to me in that day, say, Lord, Lord, did we not?" Cast out demons and, and heal the sick in your name. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. This idea of authentic faith is so vital to our relationship with Christ. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Peter records, and of course, Peter is placed in this time period of the book of Acts. So if you imagine the book of Acts as a timeline of AD 30 to AD 70 or late 60s, you can take the rest of the books from um, Romans on and I could take out the book of Second Peter, 
and I could put it in the timeline of Acts so people can understand. So I'm pulling out of the book of Acts and reading a commentary on Peter and Second Peter. That'd be, a, were false. that'd be a great chart to find. Yes, we need yeah, to. I'll just, try to just for all of us to have and see. That's, that's a good that's visual. Yes, yes. So the timeline of eighty thirty to seventy, you can put the rest of the books in there somewhere. So um, really, Acts is your master timeline of the New Testament post Gospels, and the other books can fall into that timeline. So. Uh, in fact, you can even read when it goes in the book of Acts, it says something like, you know, and Paul went and uh, stayed in this place for three months. Well, we know if he stayed there, for example, he wrote the book of, you know, so-and-so at that time period. So you can go to that book and say he wrote something and you can go read what he wrote, you know, that kind of thing. Verse one, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring up themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of the uh, uh, truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. It's all for profit. It's all for money. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. What did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 24, what did he say? He said, take heed that no man deceive you. When's he saying this? 80-30. What's going to happen, Lord? Well, many will come in my name and saying, I am the Christ and shall deceive many. It's recorded for us in Acts and in other parts of the Bible as well, uh, other parts of the New Testament. And I always try to say, and Jimmy, I know you encourage us to go deep in these, but there's even more than we're saying here. I'm just trying to give us a flavor of it so we understand where it is. Um, okay, let's move on to verse six. I hope those that are listening will think that we sufficiently showed. And by the way, for this to be fulfilled prophecy, I need to show one, only one. I'm showing multiple. I don't have to show you if it says in Micah that there's going to be a savior born in Bethlehem. And I show you that there was a savior born in Bethlehem. I don't have to show you that there was two saviors born in Bethlehem to make Micah true. Once it's fulfilled, folks, it's fulfilled. Once we see it, it happened. We don't have to keep looking for a prophecy to be fulfilled over and over again. All right, Matthew 24, verse 6. He then says, You shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I want to also point out real quick that if the, people that take this to say, Oh, the war of Russia and Ukraine is what this is talking about. Jesus also said, be not troubled, um, <laughs> which is about the opposite of what these prophecy teachers, a lot of prophecy teachers today, like the David Jeremiah's of the world. I think David Jeremiah is a believer. I, I would never call him a heretic. I think a heretic is somebody who teaches a different way of salvation. Um, the Bible calls that those kind of people antichrists. They deny that the Lord Jesus came in the flesh and they teach a different message altogether about the issue of Christ. David Jeremiah acknowledges that Jesus is God's son and he's God in the flesh and he's the only way to salvation. So he's not a heretic, but he sure is wrong about his eschatology. People like David Jeremiah, they are selling a lot of books based on fear. Be ready. What's the signs? Be ready. Jesus said, be not troubled. That's about the opposite of what people are doing today that are peddling that Matthew 24 and Revelation is in, our, is in our future still. 
just so people could hear this too, I think parts of Revelation are in our future. The advancement of the kingdom that we talked about earlier, the, the new heavens and the new earth are not completed. That's still being done. That's being worked out as the gospel advances. So I do not think all of it is completed where the church is growing still as an infant into a toddler, into a man. We'll see a little bit of that later. But Jesus says here, guys, ye, once again, who's he talking to? Disciples. disciples. For what? The destruction of the temple. What's the sign of this, Lord? Tell us. Well, guys, you, second person, personal pronoun, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now, what, what can we take from that? Well, I think, Jimmy, I really believe what I'm about to say. I don't think anybody listening to us or anybody in Christendom would ever disagree with anything we're saying if we were really knowledgeable about what took place in 66 to 70 AD. Most folks have no clue what took place in the Roman Jewish war and leading up to it. Now, I want to say um, that we're going to get into some details in verse 7, specifically about the famines, that will be very difficult to hear. And I, I know Jimmy and I, you and I talked about whether or not to even include this in the video. We think it's important to include it because these details are real and most folks don't know them. But graphic, graphic violence took place from 66 to 70 AD. It lasted for about 42 months, exactly like the Bible says. These three and a half years were horrific as Rome overtook Jerusalem. So we're going to talk about this. Jesus said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled. Now, there's a lot we could talk about because as we got closer to the destruction of the temple, Rome uh, started to experience a civil war and they started to really have a lot of infighting. And, and they had had a bunch of peace for a long time, right? Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. There's something that people can Google, check this out. Because this, if, if, if this is true, which obviously we take it as truth, that means that you can go do research on the History Channel, if it's accurate, and check this out. And in fact, you can. What time period would it even matter for Jesus to say, let me give you a really good key indicator. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Every time period has wars and rumors of wars. Yeah, we've always had wars, as long as I, yeah. I can remember. And then history shows us, you know, forever. Yeah. I mean, when World War One came, I mean, a world conflict, that seems like that would probably be a good time for verse 6 to be a fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And I many mean, thought oh, it was. And many thought it was. Mm -hmm. And then in 1941, 1942, World War II. Then we have the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Iraq. the war, Iraq War, yeah. um, Desert Storm. Um, I mean, you know, there's always wars. Now, my point is this. Is it proper for us to see the, the war of Russia, Ukraine and say, oh, yeah, prophecy is being fulfilled today. Jesus said for us to, first of all, that's not accurate. Jesus told the disciples that they would hear and see, not Ken. Um, I'm being a little snarky right now, so bear with me. I'm being a little bit, um, I mean this in a humorous way. 
but I call this chronological snobbery. <laughs> chronological snobbery is when you read a timestamp story in the Bible of chronology and you look at it and go, this is talking about me. I call that chronological snobbery. You assume everything's about you. <laughs> when he says to the disciples that it's for them. So there's only been one backdrop in the history of the world where this would have made sense. And folks, you can Google this. Please do educate yourself on this. It's called the Pax Romana, P-A-X Romana. And it's the, the uh, Roman peace is what that means. It's Latin for Roman peace. The Pax Romana uh, began when Octavian, Augustus, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the Battle of Oct Octium in, on September 2nd in B 31 BC. It started approximately a 200-year span of peace in the world. So that's 31 years approximately, probably more like 28 because our years are off. About 28 or so years before Christ was born, the world had been experiencing peace. They say, why? Because Rome conquered the known world. They're yeah. in charge. There's if, one guy in charge. And if you dare get out of line, you could look at the road lined with crosses and yep. see what they do to you. That's right. And so they, they kept peace by ruling yeah. by force. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Rome, you know, as we've, as we've heard so many times, Rome um, led with an iron fist and they didn't take any, any garbage from anybody. And that is exactly why, understanding that background, that's why the Pharisees used that against Christ. This guy thinks he's king. What did you guys hear about that? This guy wants to do a political revolt. That's why they, that, that, and that'll make more sense in Revelation when we understand that the beast is Rome, and then there's another beast that rides on it. That's the land beast is Israel, and the sea beast is Rome. And, and they rode Rome until Rome bucked them off and devoured them. I mean, that's exactly what happened. We'll get into that. I will show that in great detail in Revelation. It'll be so obvious. You'll look at that and go, how does anybody not even think that? It's so clear. Yeah. But that's what happened. So we have this Pax Romana, this Roman peace of 200 years. That's the backdrop that Jesus is born into. 30 years after it begins, we're in Matthew 24. So we've had, I'm sorry, did I say that? 60 is what I meant to 60, say if I didn't yeah. say that. I don't know what I just said. 60, said did I say 40? <laughs> did I say 30? Okay, yeah. 30 plus 30, I had that in my head. So we have 30 years until Jesus is born. 30 years later, or approximately or so, um, we have... Matthew 24 is being spoken. So we have 60 years of global peace in the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, guys, you're going to start hearing about wars. Now that matters because there hasn't been any side of it. Now, there's a lot we could talk about. I want to talk about specifically getting started. People can check this out. In AD 69, so one year before the temple was destroyed, a civil war was going on in Rome leading up to the destruction because they're asking about when the destruction of the temple is going to be 8069 is a significant year let, let me back up just one year before that nero um is commits suicide in ad 68 he kills himself because of political pressure and also um he is 
he is overtaken and said that he cannot be doing a good job. And there are people vying for this position. And Jerusalem is an increasing problem. So there's this area of Judah, which of course where we have Jerusalem, that it begins to be a problem for the Roman Empire. These guys are just bucking the system. Nero is not getting it done. He oppresses them big time, but he kills himself in, in AD 68. Now, there's a vacancy for emperor. And so people are vying for this. So in AD 69, we refer to it as, if you want to Google it, YouTube it, check it out. It's called the year of the four emperors. That's kind of the way history has dubbed this thing. In a span of 18 months, there was four different emperors in Rome, which is just crazy. You know, imagine if we had four different presidents in one year because they all were killing each other. That's what we've got in the Roman Empire. So we have the year four emperors. Check that out, AD 69. This is the this was the ma- major civil war in Rome. Here's how it went. Nero committed suicide on June 9th in AD 68. A guy named Galba took over. Um, this was an older guy that um, folks saw as maybe could stabilize, but uh, no, uh, he didn't do a very good job. And a guy named Otho came over and took over for him. Uh, Gilba wanted somebody else to succeed him, but Otho was the one that did. So uh, this made Otho get so mad that he killed Galba. So just, you know, easier to just kill somebody, right? Otho killed himself when a guy named Vitellius wins a battle to overtake him. So a guy named Vitellius says, I can do a better job than you. Otho sees that he wins, kills himself, okay? Now, Vitellius, he killed a mob. Uh, he was killed by a mob set by another name. And here might be a name people recognize, some com- sometimes called Vespasian or Vespasian. He's the one that came and said, I think I'm going to do better than any of you. And indeed, he did. He brought stability to Rome. He was the fourth emperor in such a short amount of time. Vespasian uh, was there, and he's the one that began to. Uh, carry out this conflict against Jerusalem. He ultimately uses his son named Titus. Now, Titus wasn't the emperor at this time. He would become the emperor in about 10 years at this from this time. But Vespasian used him as, a, as another arm. And he's the one that said, Vespasian said to his son, Titus, go figure out this conflict in Judah. So Rome is in an all-out civil war leading up to the destruction of the temple. And folks need to understand what's going on at this time. Not only that, what we were just talking about, but also uh, some people also ask me about this. They will say, hey, Ken, if this is true, it says nation shall rise against nation. How is that true if we're talking about the Roman Empire? There's only one nation. Let Let me discuss that for just a second and address that. Because even though we're talking about uh, one Roman Empire, there are still nations in the Bible. And let me show you that. Here's Romans 15, 24. Paul says, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, he still recognizes Spain as a nation. Spain is independent in a sense. Uh, let's, Let's go ahead and move on to another one. We have in Acts 18... In verse number two, we have a, a mention of Italy right here in Acts 18.2. But wait, there's more. Matthew chapter two and verse number 13. Of course, we know when our Lord was being under, was potentially under attack as an infant, we know that Joseph departed. Remember where he went? Into Egypt. 
Egypt was still a nation. All of these were independent nations. We could go on. I think that's sufficient. All of these were independent nations within the broader spectrum of the Roman Empire. So nation against nation obviously is still possible. Even even Israel still considered itself a nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you have Herod. Very interesting. Herod was an Edomite. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't too fondly thought of. You can, you can read about how well Herod was. That's why he redid the temple, to get in good favor with them. But yeah, yeah, they were still their own nation. Well, wasn't the high priest, didn't he kind of prophesy that one man should die for the, for the nation? For the nation, yes. Good call. That's exactly right. I was trying yeah, to find that, and I couldn't find yeah, it. Yeah, he was chastising them toward, towards the end of Matthew. He was chastising them, saying, you guys are missing the boat. And here's what's interesting about that passage. That guy wasn't necessarily a godly fella. But, but he was still tackle. the high priest. He knew. He knew the information. That's a great passage. Good call on that. So Jesus says here, you're here of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Again, and I'm not trying to, to uh, uh, well, here's an English idiom. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, Jimmy. So if somebody 2,000 years from now watches this video, they're going to go, they used to beat dead horses to make a point. No, now that's an English idiom. And I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, but let me just say, Jesus is saying, building up to the destruction of the temple, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. Why? Because all these things must come to pass. Must come to pass for what, Jesus? For the end to come. The end is not yet. The end of what? The end of the temple age. Very simple. If we didn't hear such bad teaching on this, this would be so simple. But we have to undo bad teaching. That's what makes it hard. Okay, in verse 7, we learn about nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Look at the specifics here. There shall be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes. Let's take these one at a time. Famines, let's tackle that. Famines, um, we actually have famines that are mentioned in history. Uh, History records 30,000 Romans die in one famine. We have even famines mentioned in the book of Acts, our evidence book. Uh, Luke was a physician, and he writes in in very methodical ways, and he is proving what Jesus said to be true here. In Acts chapter 11 and verse number uh, 27 uh, I, Jimmy, look what I did. I didn't correct our uh, thing there. What? Where did we find that at? That's eleven twenty-eight. It's just the very next verse. It's the next verse. Why did I do that? Oh, there, because I'm looking for the word famine. Okay, yeah. It says and there stood up one of them named Agabus, as signified by the spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So in the days of Claudius. Um, we see a, a great famine and recorded in the book of Acts. We have another one recorded too, and um, I don't know that I wrote it down. But let me talk about, uh, by the way, Claudius reigned from AD 41 to AD 54. But here we have a, a great famine in the Bible. Now, Jimmy, I want to give a disclaimer, and I would like to, by the way, while I'm getting this ready, could you find that Leviticus passage on the fly, do you think, it's that Leviticus, goes along with this? Leviticus twenty six twenty nine. 
Oh, good job. Good job. Leviticus 26, 29, right? Is that right? 26, 29? Yes. Okay, look at this now. Let's get the context of what we're talking about. We're talking about the, okay, this is just so good that I just, we can't go past this too fast. Leviticus 26, let's go to the beginning of it. Folks, do you remember the teaching on the covenants? If, this would be a great time to pause this if folks are, what I'm about to say will further your Bible knowledge past, I, I, I believe from just talking to people all day, past where most people ever get in their life. Please understand what we're about to say. The covenants, the two covenants that we talked about, the, the Abrahamic covenant of promise, the Mosaic covenant of conditions, the blessings and cursings, to understand those two, this would be an awesome time. I don't want to take anybody from our video. Pause this video. Go watch our video on the two covenants to understand that and come back to this part of our video. If you understand the Abrahamic covenant of promise that Jesus is attached to and the Mosaic covenant of blessings and cursings. It's a stipulation of covenant conditions. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. Leviticus 26 is talking about what happens if you disobey. At the beginning, there's blessings. The heading here says blessings. But as you work your way through this chapter, there's penalties for disobedience of the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus is bringing a covenant lawsuit against apostate Israel based on their disobedience of the Mosaic Covenant. Excuse me, I'm going to say that again because it's so important. We have here a record in Leviticus 26. You can also check this out, um, as we talked about it at the beginning, in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 28. So get those two chapters in your head, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. They both talk about this. This is so important to understand. Jesus came with a covenant lawsuit. He came with the same message as the prophets. When you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know Daniel, you read about um, uh, Zechariah, Joel, Amos, all these guys had the same message. If you guys disobey the Mosaic Covenant, you're going to be punished harshly. And you remember how they treated them. They just killed them. They thought it was easier to kill them than to listen. So Jesus came in and said, I'm the last of the prophets, Matthew 21. I'm the son of the owner of the vineyard. End of Matthew 21. Check it out. And he said, you guys have disobeyed. You've not produced fruit in the vineyard. And guess what? The days come. Destruction will come upon this generation. Leviticus 26 is the record, it's the legal documents that all of the prophets were carrying with them in their legal briefs. They were more attorneys than anything. They're carrying these legal documents, and they said, guys, all the prophets of the Old Covenant, guys, let me remind you what Leviticus 26 says. You guys are, you're blowing this thing. You're just really in trouble with the Lord. Remember what Deuteronomy 28 says, that Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 were heavily quoted by the prophets saying, you guys are in trouble. Now, Jimmy pointed out that there's one verse in here in particular, uh, Leviticus 26. And now that I've moved it, what did you say? 29. 29. Now look at this. One of the penalties for being disobedient, and I'm going to go ahead and at this point, Jimmy, um, because I know 
I don't desire to teach um, by shock value. So I'm going to give a little disclaimer and I'm going to say this. What I'm about to tell everybody is graphic and I don't take any pleasure in that. I'm, I taught on this in our church and I taught this in detail. I, I was literally sick even talking about it and reading about it. So what we're going to talk about, I think it's very important for people to know, but I just want folks to know I do not flippantly talk about this. It's very serious. But because people don't know what I'm about to say, they don't think anything happened that Matthew 24 is, is in our future because it wasn't really that bad. Leviticus 26, 29 prophesies, says this grotesque idea, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. This is talking about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of cities. I will make your cities waste, bring your sanctuaries onto desolation, talking about this desolation idea of the temple. And so I will bring the land to desolation. Don't mess with the warnings of God, folks. This is a covenant lawsuit. Jesus brings all of this up in his ministry and says, I brought people to warn you to get on the right track and you killed them. So are you going to listen to me now? No, we're going to kill you too. End of the end of end of the end of the age. We're going to end the whole thing. The temple will be destroyed. So look at this horrific thing. You're going to eat your kids. Now, I am going to read. This is a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to read to folks from Josephus. Now, Josephus was a Jewish historian, but it's important for folks to know that he was on the Roman side. Um, he really didn't want anything to do with the Jews. He saw. He actually became a prisoner of war in the Jewish-Roman War. Josephus became a prisoner of war by the Romans, and he was lined up to be killed. And he basically talked his way out of it, saying, I'm of great value. I'm a historian. I, I write things down. So they pulled him out of the slaughter, and they, they basically hired him and said, okay, if you're a learned guy, remember, uh, I think the, liter the literation or the, what, what do we say? the literacy rate at that point was only like 5%. Yeah. It's very low in the first century. And so he said, hey, I read and write. I'm a historian. Hire me. I'll do work for free. He's trying to keep his, his life. So that's who Josephus is. He's a, he's a Jewish historian, and he was alive as a firsthand witness for what we're reading about in the Jewish war. Here's, folks, here's what he wrote. You can find this in Josephus, and this is in um, Book 6, Section 3.4. So you can Google this. It's free information. Josephus is free on the Internet. Book six, section 3.4. Folks, I'm going to read this to you. He gives an account of a woman named Mary. Now, obviously, this is not Mary, Joseph, Jesus' mother. It's not who it is. Somebody else. There was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eliezer. Of the village of Bethazab, which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent for her family, for her wealth and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged therein at this time. He's talking about the, the siege of Jerusalem. 
The other effects of this woman had already been seized upon, such, I mean, as she had brought with her out of Perea and moved to the city. What she had treasured up besides, as also what food she had contrived to save, had been also carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into her house for that purpose. So in other words, she had great wealth, she had a lot of food, and the Roman guards recognized her house as a place to get supplies. If you're hungry, go to Mary's house. Again, different Mary. Go to Mary's house. She always has food. She's wealthy. They, she became known as that. Well, they took it all. All right. This put the poor woman, now she's the poor woman, Josepha says, into a very great passion. And by the frequent reproaches and imprecations, she uh, east uh, at these uh, rapacious villains, she had provoked them to anger against her, but none of them, either out of the indignation she had raised against herself or out of the uh, commiseration of her case, would take away her life. If she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others, not for herself. And it was now become impossible for her anyways to find any more food. While the famine pierced through the very bowels of the morrow, when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessity she was in, she then attempted a most unnatural thing, a snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast. She said, O oh, thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. This famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditions rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these sedacious varlets, and a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and then roasted him. And eat the one half of him, I mean, awful and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the seditions came in presently. The smelling of the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. They recognized it was a different smell. The Roman guards came in and said, what are you cooking? She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them. Wow. And withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with the horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, This is mine own son, and what hath been done was mine own doing. Come, eat of this food, for I have eaten of it myself. Do not you pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than a mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate, this is my sacrifice as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. After which those men went out trembling. The Roman soldiers left her house disgusted, couldn't believe how vile she was. They left sick to their stomach 
and trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this. And with some difficulty, they left the rest of that meat to the mother, upon which the whole city was full of, listen to what he says, upon which the whole city was full of this horrid action immediately. While everybody laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die. And those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough to either to hear or to see such miseries. Now, folks, I hate even reading that. This is one part of Josephus's account of what took place in the time period leading up to the destruction of the temple. The Lord God said, don't disobey me. You're going to end up eating the flesh of your sons and of your daughters. Then in Matthew chapter 24, we read, he says here in verse number six, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Be not troubled. These things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And and then we've touched on this one thing. There's going to be famines. And boy, ever was there famines. And so this account of Josephus, and by the way, that's not just one, there's not just one account. I'm just reading one thing and told you where it was. Go find Josephus's uh, information and read about this. You also have Suetonius. Uh, Suetonius was a Roman historian. Um, Tacitus, read Tacitus. These guys thought that when the Roman, the civil war was happening in Rome, they thought that was the end of the Roman empire. That's how bad it was. All right. Tough to read. I'm sorry to even have to read that, but um, I want folks to understand how bad this was. Can we also talk about this diseases, this pestilence in different places? Uh, Let's talk about that real quickly. Um, In Acts chapter 5, in verse number 15, we talk about there came also a multitude out of the cities round about onto Jerusalem, bringing out sick folks. They were lined on the streets. These sick people, there's diseases and pestilence they were they were they were bacterial infections um they they also were vexed with unclean spirits talk about a terrible time demonic activity diseases and these now you can understand the backdrop these apostles of christ these guys were superheroes they're going along healing every one of them god was using the wickedness of this backdrop to show that there's power in the gospel. That's why Christianity exploded like it did. These guys literally were walking down the streets and people were desperate to get the attention of the um, apostles, okay? Uh, um, uh, Did I read this? I don't think I did. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick onto the streets. They laid them on the beds and couches that the least of the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. If his shadow touches me, I'll be well. They had such desperation that they heard that there's a chance somebody could come and heal me of this pestilent disease. This is all throughout the book of Acts. I'm just going to show a few of the highlights here. Acts chapter 19 and verse number 12. It says here, so that from his, we've got to get context here. This is so amazing. God's using the apostle Paul to heal people. Paul rents a room. This is in Ephesus. He rents a room and he's doing Bible teaching in the room. And he's 
wearing uh, something with a handkerchief and wiping his forehead. Well, he leaves for the day and he leaves the handkerchief there. So guess what? These guys see in verse 12 that from his body were brought unto the sick the handkerchiefs or aprons that he left behind. They're like, this is from the apostle Paul. Maybe this can heal my family. The Lord honored their faith and the diseases departed from them. They were desperate to be healed with all this disease going on. Look at Acts chapter 28, 28, all the way to verse 8. So they're getting uh, this help from the the locals there. Verse number 8 says, And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in, prayed, laid his hands on him, and healed him. It also goes beyond the book of Acts. Now let's pull out of that timeline and let's pull out the book of Second uh, Timothy. Second Timothy, and this is going to be in verse, uh, chapter number four, <clears throat> verse twenty. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum. Why, Paul? Why did you do that? And he got sick too. Look at First Timothy chapter number five and verse 23. Paul's instruction to Timothy, to young Timothy was, Timothy, stop drinking the water. Why? Because they were getting dysentery from the water. There was all these diseases in the drinking water. So he heard about Timothy getting sick like everyone else. And Paul had gave him very practical instruction. He said, drink no longer the water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. The alcohol will kill the parasites in the water will kill the, the diseases in the water. He says, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Let's go back to our Matthew 24 passage. We are doing biblical theology today, Jimmy. We are looking in the Bible and we are looking in the pages of the Bible for answers from the Bible. I love it. Is it this, is opposed, it. this is opposed to what is often called newspaper exegesis. Which is, you read the Bible, then you shut it, and you look to the news for the answer. Folks, line upon line, precept upon precept, scripture upon scripture, we find these things in the Word of God. We've looked at famines, pestilence, let's look at earthquakes. Now, and again, you guys find your favorite search engine and go search this out. There was an earthquake in Crete in AD 46. There was an earthquake in Rome in AD 51. Ampamaya, there was an earthquake in AD 53. Laodicea, there was an earthquake in AD 60. Campania, there was an earthquake in AD 62. We actually have these also recorded in the Bible. So let's go ahead and look at the biblical um, passages here. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, of course. This is when Jesus died. There was an earth, the earth did quake at his death. That's recorded in the Bible. Look we at, also have. Look at 54. Verse 54. I guess that's probably, that's probably the same one, though, isn't it? Yeah, saw the earthquake, mm-hmm. yep. And uh, in our last in our last um, video in, on Matthew 23, this is the part where the centurion looks back, um, proverbially through the eastern gate. He might have been looking over it if he were on Mount of Olives. But looking through that eastern gate at the temple and saw this, this earthquake happening, they saw the temple uh, veil was torn from top to bottom. And— there was even one. There was even an earthquake at the resurrection as well in twenty eight two. Twenty eight two. Yeah. Let's let's hit that real quick. In twenty eight two, 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. This this movement of the earth is a big deal in this time period. Okay, Acts 16. See another one. Verse 26. As we get here, Luke records this for our evidence. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loose. This is, the, this is talking about Paul and Silas when they were singing to the Lord. Can you imagine, guys, all of this junk going on? Just sick and dead people lining the streets. They're beaten. They're imprisoned. And they're having a worship service in the prison. And I doubt those prisons were very sanitary. Oh, man. They were, it was basically a death sentence. You can yeah. get dysentery in there and get a bacterial infection. It's it. Mm. But yeah, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. Oh, and look what the Lord did. And guess what? The prison's doors. Right open. Walk on out, guys. Oh, and let's make it a little easier. Even their shackles were loosed. Their bands were loosed. This was such a big deal for the Roman people. The keeper of the prison awaked out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open. You know what he did? He said, I can't believe that Nero would just kill himself. He was the emperor. Things went bad for him on a empire scale. Look at this guy is just a prison guard. He's a corrections officer. He noticed he lost two prisoners. Maybe there was more. We know of two. You know what he did? Drew out his sword. And you know what? He was ready to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had fled. Now, side note, I'm a little bit rabbit trailing. Paul cried with a loud voice, said, do thyself no harm for we're all here. He was saying, listen, you didn't do a bad job. There was an earthquake. <laughs> and so, uh, interesting, this guy, he called for a light, sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas. And here's the right response. And most of the Gentiles responded this way, brought them out, said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is... I'm sorry if I'm rabbit trail. I just got to say this real quick because it's so cool. This is the same reason Jesus used parables. Jesus used parables to speak to the Jewish people to veil the gospel from the Gentiles. Say, so why would he do that? Because Jesus needed the Gentiles to murder him. He did not reveal. Jesus didn't come like Joel Osteen. He was not trying to make a big crowd by his ministry. He came as a lamb to the slaughter. He got famous because he was healing folks and because of his message. And he spoke with one having authority. Jesus did not come to be famous, though. In fact, he would often say, go and don't tell anybody. And he heals me, go and tell no man. He didn't come to be famous. He got famous, but he didn't come for that reason. And so when he would speak, he spoke in a way that the Romans, it meant nothing to them. He wasn't saying hey, you remember how Adam was created and Eve? I did that. And you're a part of humanity and you need a savior. I'm God in the flesh and I've come to be to bring salvation to you. They even asked him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? He's like, that's what you're saying. He wouldn't answer anything straight. Why? Jimmy, it's so important for people to understand. He said to the Jews, because the kingdom was given unto you. It's for you to understand, not them. Why? Because if the Romans got a hold of who Jesus was, they never would have murdered him. It even says that in Acts. Had they known, you would never have crucified the Lord of the heavens if you knew who he was. That's why Jesus on the cross could say, truthfully, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
They had no clue who he was. And so Jesus knew if the Gentiles heard a clear presentation of the gospel, they would immediately be converted. Just like he said, remember the sign of Jonah last video? What four, uh, eight, eight words, eight words, eight lackluster words. I put up nine, eight words. Um, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Huge revival. The Gentiles were ready to believe. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, sorry, little rabbit show. I want folks to understand that this backdrop of the Roman culture uh, was pretty powerful. Let's go back to our home base here in Matthew 24. And we get down to this last part here. We've already looked at famines. We looked at pestilence. We looked at earthquakes. <clears throat> diverse means different. That doesn't mean like uh, water divers or deep sea divers. Diverse, diverse places, diverse places, different places. Then we get to this one very important verse right here. Jesus says, all these, guys, again, all of what? All the things he's mentioned. All of the people coming in his name. All of the people that are being deceived by the Messiah, false Messiah people. All of the wars and rumors of wars on the backdrop of the Pax Romana. All of the things that have happened with nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. All of the famines, all of the pestilence, all of the earthquakes. All of these things are the beginning of, and Jimmy, this is so important that our listeners hear this. These are all the beginning of sorrows. This word for sorrows in the Greek has to do with birth pains, has to do with child labor. Okay? Very important. In fact, uh, Jimmy, I think you're going to have this ready for our screen, but the King James translators in their original work, well, in their work, they had marginal notes on the outside of the text. In their preface, which I do a five-part series on this on my um, podcast called Bible Detox, if, if anybody wants to know what the translators of the King James wanted you to know, they are shouting to you and warning you <clears throat> of how to use their translation. And almost nobody knows about it because the 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 uh, uh, the um, what am I trying to say the uh, not the printing press but the um, publishers today have taken out their their preface to you it's lengthy it's powerful you should read it I have it broken down into five parts in a podcast on Bible Detox if you want to hear about it but one of their main points was if you read the King James Bible and you don't have our marginal notes you do not have our work they were very adamant about that they had over seven thousand marginal notes in the King James Bible. That is roughly seven to eight per over 7,000. It's about, it comes on average a little bit over seven marginal notes per chapter. So when you're reading any chapter at random, on average, you'll have about seven of their notes to you, the reader, to clarify what they were saying. Because a lot of times they didn't have the right word. A lot of times they had two or three options of words to pick. Uh, the Greek language has about six, seven, eight times more words than English language. So you could use a very, very precise Greek word, and it takes three or four English words to explain it. Um, and by the marginal way, notes. By the way, if anybody uses eSword, uh, there's a commentary that you can add to it of the King James Version marginal notes. So oh, excellent. I can see them all when I, if I just select it. Okay, awesome. Do you have that at your fingertips by chance? I do. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit. Maybe you could pull up Mark 13. 
So just what I want folks to understand, when Jesus said these are the beginning of sorrows, um, he's talking about the beginning of birth pains. In fact, a lot of translations, it's just translated birth pains. The King James translators agree with that. In fact, in the parallel of Mark uh, Matthew 24 is Mark 13. And in this passage in the King James 1611 marginal notes, um, they make reference to this sorrow, this word sorrows in the Greek, it has to do with beginning of birth pains or like a woman in labor. Do you by chance have that handy? Well, which verse is it? Uh, um, well, we can try to find it off the fly here, but it's going to be in Mark 13. I've got to spell Mark right first. <laughs> but in Mark 13. Here it is, Mark, thir- it. Mark 13, 8. There you go. So their marginal K- notes, what does it say? KJV marginal notes says, the word in the original importeth the pains of a woman in travail. Amen. Okay, so they translate that as the word sorrows. I'm going to go into, I'm going to show, just, just do one more thing. We're almost done here in this video. Let me show one more thing. If we go into um, the Greek in here, so here, I went too fast. I'm sorry, folks. Let me let me show you what I just did. I'm on Mark 13. I went into the interlinear. Uh, here is the Greek verse um, right here. So this shows it in Greek, but right here shows every word that is translated. Let's go down here and let's click on this word for sorrows. The word for sorrows is udin, udin, okay? So it's udin. And look how it's used. Number one, the pain of childbirth, travail pains, birth pains, and most other translations besides the King James, that's exactly how it's how it's used. Okay. Now let's go back and I'm going to talk through this. This is super, super, super important. See folks, when they were first looking at this, probably didn't think verse eight was really important. Oh, it's the beginning of sorrows. Very important because it's communicating an idea. If this is the, what we're looking at is the beginning of sorrows. It's the beginning of birth pains, Jimmy. That is about as opposite as the end of the world as you can get. Yeah. It's not death rattle. It doesn't say these are the beginning of the death rattle. Usually, the beginning of birth pains. Yeah, usually when a woman's about to give birth, it's to something she's looking forward to, hopeful, you know, something to watch grow into Amen. maturity. Something's something is going to be produced by this pain. Mm-hmm. I watched all three of my kids born, and uh, there's a lot of pain involved. I do not envy women in that area at all. <laughs> Thank you, ladies, for how amazing you are. Thank you, mom. <laughs> Every time my birthday comes around, I just thank my mom. Um, and um, But this is the beginning of birth pains. What's going to be delivered here? Well, let, let's go and look through the Bible. This is the beginning of something. A child is on the way. What child are we talking about? Well, uh, let's look at Revelation 12. And I think Revelation 12, we'll get this in great detail when we go start going through here. But Revelation 12 is speaking of the, the birth of Jesus. And look what it says. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman, I believe that's Israel. I'll show that when we get to it. Clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the crown of 12 stars. Remember, guys? By the way, I want to encourage folks too. The more you listen to this teaching, it all just goes together. Revelation 12, 1. Look, look at how Israel was clothed. Sun, moon. And stars. This is talking about greater lights, lesser light. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 24? The sun will not give its light. 
The moon won't, stars of heaven will fall. It's the destruction of a nation. The Israel is clothed with these things. This is the this is the apocalyptic type language, prophetic language. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, pain to be delivered. It was a painful thing in the history of Israel when Jesus was getting born into this time period of the Pax Romana. And when Jesus came and was killed and crucified and resurrected, it started this 30, 40 years of intense persecution. There appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Now, folks, we'll get into this more when we get into Revelation. That is Satan. Having seven heads, ten hordes, seven crowns upon his head. This is referring to leadership. We'll get into all that later. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, that's Israel, which was ready to be delivered, that's Jesus, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now you have two things here. You have Jesus being born by Mary physically, and then you have the birth of the church being born in the book of Acts. And that birth takes place over a time span of that baton getting passed where the old covenant and the new covenant overlap for those 40 years. Those are 40 years of God's mercy for people to hear the gospel and the gospel spread like wildfire in the book of Acts. And so God's mercy was this overlapping. He said, in this generation will not pass till all these things come true. So there's two things really being born, Jesus and then those who are found in him. The movement of Christ, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's the destruction of Rome. It's exactly what we're reading about in Matthew 24. Her child was caught up to God. That's Acts chapter 1 and to his throne, Psalm 110. This all goes together, folks. The woman fled into the wilderness. That is, Israel was told by Jesus, when you see these things, flee into Judea. Why? Where she hath place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days or three and a half years they were taken care of during the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Jewish war. He said, guys, flee to, this is later in Matthew 24, flee to the hills of Judea, the mountains, go to the wilderness. People have to understand that's counterintuitive for a Jewish person. Jerusalem was a series of mazes and underground tunnels. They had food in there to last for two to three years. You could stay in Jerusalem and you could survive for two to three years. It was almost impossible to take Jerusalem. And Jesus said, when you see hard times coming, you know where you guys should go? Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we know Jerusalem. It's a well-fortified city. He said, nope, go to the wilderness. We shouldn't go to Jerusalem? Nope. Counterintuitive. Well, Listen to me and you'll live. And this also just proves the, the fact that this is not a, a global catastrophe. It's local. Yeah. It's local. Why would yeah. you be able to just go to the hills and survive yeah. it? You could walk to those hills too, by the way. That, that, that's right. That's absolutely right. I always ask people that. Is Matthew 24 about a global tribulation period? I say, yep. I said, so when it starts, are you going to go to the hills of Judea? Or is that symbolic, my literalist friends? See, you can't pick and choose what's literal and what's symbolic. Yeah. And we don't either. If I see sun, moon, and stars, and people say, oh, you just think that's symbolic because it helps your case. No, go watch that video. We take it the way the author intended, the way it's always been used. The way it was used through the whole choose. Old Testament. 
That's right. We don't have that option. Galatians chapter 1, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 4, Paul gives this incredible analogy. We went over this in one of our previous videos, so I won't take too much time here. But Paul is saying to the, the church of Galatian, we had Judaizers who were coming after Paul to a Gentile church after they got saved. And they were saying, you guys still need to be under the law of Moses. And so Paul wrote Galatians to them to straighten them out. It says in verse 21, he says, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Now he gives an analogy, an incredible analogy. For it's written, Abraham had two sons. The analogy is about Abraham's two sons. Remember, guys? He wanted a child, and um, Sarah was barren, and so he went to his hand, the handmaid, Hagar, and he had a child with her. That His name was Ishmael. Then later, Sarah conceived, and they had Isaac. So you have two children by two women, a bondwoman, a servant, so a woman that is not free, had a son, and then a free woman had a child of promise. Isaac. So it's the tale of two kids. Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, that's Hagar, the other by a free woman, that's Sarah. Okay, so here's the analogy. But he who was of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael from Hagar, was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman, that's Sarah and Isaac, was by promise. That was by God's covenantal promise. He says, which things are an allegory? That's why we know this is in an allegory way. And you know how John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress? It's a giant allegory. He said, and then I came up and down this uh, area and a man named Talkative came to me. And Talkative said to me, you know, that's how he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Amazing. And so Paul's saying, these are like, and this is like an allegory. These two kids and these two covenants. For these two covenants, for one from the Mount Sinai, guess what that is, guys? That's the one of bondage from Hagar. The Mount Sinai instruction, please hear me, is akin to, allegorically, having your child from your handmaid that's of a slave, a bondwoman, Ishmael from Hagar. That's one side. For this Hagar, or Agar, is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem. Please get this. Paul's writing this in the 60s. It answereth to the Jerusalem, which now is the present Jerusalem, the one over Rome that is experiencing all these increased civil wars. It's getting more and more dangerous to be in Jerusalem. This is likened unto, if you want to go live there, a bondwoman having Ishmael, and you're in slavery. So if you want to go live in Jerusalem currently in the mid-60s, Paul says, be my guest. But guess what? That's not the one in covenant anymore. You can go live in Jerusalem for historical reasons, but not for current reasons as God is telling you to keep his covenant because that covenant is null and void, guys, and the temple's about to be destroyed. But look what he says here, Jimmy, very important. He says, but in contrast to the physical Jerusalem, which is likened unto the bondwoman with Ishmael, but the Jerusalem, which is above, that's the new Jerusalem from Revelation 21, as adorned for her bride, for her husband. He says in 21, let me go show you the Lamb's bride. And what does he do? He shows him the city. New Jer we don't just live in the new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. Peter says, you are like living stones built up into this site. Revelation 3, 
He says, if you're obedient to me, I will make you a pillar in the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, which is above, is free. Look at this, guys, which is the mother of us all. It's the birth of something. This new Jerusalem has birthed something. What has it birthed? The Ecclesia, the, the Church of Christ, the nation of Jesus was birthed through the pain of the destruction of old Jerusalem. And guess what took its place? A new Jerusalem. What does that mean? The temple is in it. What's the temple? Me and you. We are in the body of Christ. Jesus said, destroy it. I'll raise it up in three days. And so the new Jerusalem houses the temple. Where's that? Our bodies. We are in Christ. This idea of birth pains has to do with birthing out something, which is the infant of the church in its infancy stages, the beginning of the church that's going to grow over time. But wait, there's more. John chapter 3. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 1? There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be what? Born again. This idea of a new birth. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus misses the hermeneutic. Much like people miss the hermeneutic of Matthew 24 and Revelation. He took it very literal. How can a man be born when he's old? How do I do? How, what is this born again thing? Can he enter into the second time in his mother's womb? Jesus said, you know what? That's not what it is. It's by the spirit. And in, in just a few years, Nicodemus, you're going to hear me teach at the Olivet Discourse. And I'm going to clearly explain how you can be born again. And you're going to learn what it means for a woman to travail in pain, birth, you're going to see birth pains and get on board with that because you can be born again into the church. That's exactly what he's saying there, into Jesus himself. One more and we'll be through for today. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. This is terminology we use all the time. Peter says this. He says, being born again, a new birth. In fact, uh, maybe we can look at this on the fly. Is it Second Corinthians five seventeen or First Corinthians? I always forget. Um, second, okay, I got it right. He, Paul says this to the church at Corinth: If any man be in Christ, there's your salvation shelter in the shelter. If you're in Him, what are you, Jimmy? You're a new creature, new creation, new creation. Talk: Sun, moon, and stars will go away. I'm creating all things new. If you're in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You're born again in him. And so he says to these guys, there is a movement coming called the church. No one can stop it. And by the way, a movement started with 12 guys. We'll even say 120 in the upper room. A movement started by 120 people 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, still today cannot be stopped. No one can stop the movement of Jesus. No one can stop this movement called the Church of Christ. The nation of Christ cannot be stopped. And now about one-third of the world's population claim Christ, and it will only grow. And so, verse 24, he says, 
When you see these things, it's the beginning, the beginning, the beginning, folks, beginning, not the end. It's the beginning of birth pain. Something's going to come forth from this. Be encouraged in your tribulation. Be encouraged in your wars. Be not troubled. Something will come from this that's going to grow. And that is the excitement. Going back full circle to Colleen's question about being scared. Guys, we're on the, we're on the, we're on the upside of this thing. We get to see the growth of the kingdom. Praise God. Praise God. Great, great uh, episode, Ken. Thank you so much. Amen. Amen.